chapter 5. We're going to read verses 6 and 19. And I'm also going to read Ephesians 4, 28. As we're working through the Ten Commandments, just another reminder that... um, the Ten Commandments are laying not only what we should not do, but it's also laying out what, what a good life looks like, what an attractive life looks like, uh, what a God-centered life looks like. And so, I don't know about you, but every week I feel like there's nowhere to escape my own, <laughs> my, my own lack of conformity to, to God's law. Uh, that, that's part of the purpose of going through the Ten Commandments is we're this holding up a mirror and saying, there's dirt here. How are you going to get that dirt off your face? <laughs> and the only answer then is, is the foot of the cross. It's what Jesus has done uh, to, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and, and make us righteous as he is. And so keep that in perspective as we go through each commandment here. So let's, let's talk about the eighth commandment, do not steal. And I'll read, read these texts. Pull up Ephesians here. This is the word of our God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall not steal. And then Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And this is the word of our God. He has spoken to us today in love. Uh, let, let's pray. Father, as we said repeatedly this morning, you are abundantly generous. Um, you have invested the life and death of your son in us so that we might live generously and graciously with you and for you. And so I pray this morning that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, that you, we might learn to be righteous uh, gracious and generous with all that you have given us, rather than being controlled by them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, did you know that money was so significant in the ministry of Jesus that he talked about our possessions and our relationship with our possessions more than he talked about heaven? Um, More than he talked about hell. I mean, honestly, as I'm getting ready for this, realizing that Jesus talked a lot more about money than we do, than I do. Uh, It's on, if you read the Gospel of Luke, you can't avoid it. It's on every, almost every single page. You can go right to where Jesus was born in a place of poverty. You can listen to Mary's song, the Magnificat. Of She's just in awe that God would pay any attention to, to this person in a humble estate, uh, low as her. Right. And so why does Jesus talk about money so much? And, and obviously the answer is uh, our relationship with money is complicated. <laughs> it's a tale of gratitude, right? Uh, Proverbs loves to point out that the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. In other words, having possessions, money itself, right? It's God's gift. It's his idea. His, his goal is, it, it's, a, it's a blessing, right? He's not adding sorrow to, to making you rich. 
So we can be grateful, but at the same time, we also know that money can be a source of all kinds of grief and sorrow, and, and that's what First Timothy uh, famously said, right? That the love of money is a, is a root of all kinds of evils, and it's through the craving for money that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows, right? So it, like I said, this doesn't take too much imagination, because we all know that feeling in your gut when you feel like you, when you know you don't have enough money to pay the bills. Um, you know, we are signing the paperwork for this massive loan <laughs> to buy a house. It's like, oh no, what have we done? Right? Do I have enough money to get what I need, what I want? Can I pay the bills this month? Um, or we know how Psalm 73 works, right? And I see the prosperity of the wicked, the comfort of the arrogant, and the psalmist says, I nearly lost my faith out of envy. Because it looks like they can do whatever they want, and they're, li they're living the good life, they're comfortable, uh, without any consequences, right? So money causes all kinds of grief. <laughs> so all that to say, it should be no surprise when you come to the Ten Commandments that we find at least one of them uh, is about our relationship with our money and our possessions, and so this morning, let's look at what kind of life the Eighth Commandment is describing. And the, the first point is that our money is not our own. Right? So we've got to put our possessions and our money in their proper place. Um, so one of the surprising things, and I, I've seen this in conversation with some of you, one of the surprising things about the Ten Commandments is that many of them actually come with a death penalty. Um, right? Sabbath breaking, dishonoring your parents, murder, adultery. But when you come to stealing, in comparison to especially the, the, the neighbors around Israel, that does not have a death penalty. Um, it's much, seemingly much less harsh than its neighbors because the, the punishment often involves some kind of restitution, right? Give back what you took, and if necessary, give more. Um, if you can't pay it off, you've got to go work off your debt. Sell yourself into to, well, ancient slavery. But what in Israel, in God's world, the one thing you could not do as a rich person was take a life and then just pay out some money for that life as if you could put a dollar amount on the value of a human being. Right? So... The severity of the punishment for taking a life, for example, versus the, the, the punishment for stealing someone's stuff is, is laying real, a really good groundwork here that, that, that human life is immeasurably higher. The value of a human life is immeasurably higher than our stuff. Right? The, so we say this often with our kids, right? People, people matter more than stuff. Um, and how many of our arguments are over, you touched my stuff? <laughs> uh, it starts with, right, your toy. <laughs> As adults, it gets a little more sophisticated, but it's still the same argument. Right? And we know that people matter more than stuff intuitively. Because if you ask a parent, who do you love more, your child or your fill-in-the-blank, right? Your boat, your cat, your, your car. Right? And yet our reactions, I don't can speak for myself, my reactions when something's broken or taken or ruined, right? We act like everything is our own and we can overreact. 
right? So part of this commandment, right, I, I read do not steal. I'm like, I'm not really tempted to go out and, and rob a bank or break into someone's house. But the narrative of not stealing is saying, what is your relationship with your stuff, with your money, with your possessions, with all these good things God has given you? Right? We, we aren't rational about our stuff. Um, some modern day examples, right? Um, in, in the wildfires in 2003 in, in Southern California, a lady named Robin Sloan, rather than immediately jumping in the car to save her life, she filled her car with mementos. And that extra time that she spent filling her car with her stuff, she never made it out. Right. Or you can just open the newspaper. No, we don't have those anywhere. Open the website that tells you the news. <laughs> right? Wars are still being fought over land, over cattle, uh, over stuff. I mean, you go into the inner city, a lot of these arguments that lead to death, over stuff. Siblings don't talk to each other because there's a disagreement over an inheritance. People go into massive debt trying to live a lifestyle that's greater than they can afford because we, we don't want to look like we're poor or at least poorer than the people we want to fit in with. Right? So when Jesus said, where, where your heart is, there your treasure, your treasure will be also. You could say where your... Where your, bank, where your bank account goes, there your heart is. And so, why are we so attached to money and to our stuff? And, and I think the, the big answer is, I think it's all mine. Right? My life is my own and I will build my own kingdom even if it means I have to plunder yours to make mine better. Tim, Tim Keller says as well that money, money is simply a measure of how much of the world you control. Right? And so I already mentioned this briefly, but having the ability and financial resources to take care of something, it's not a bad thing. Right? The scripture text does not say money is evil. It says money is a root of all kinds of evils. Now, having stuff to take care of, having money... That's part of being human. That's part of how God made us. He gives us a corner of the world to take care of. And money is the means to live out our calling as God's image bearers in the world. And so the fact that you look around in the world and there are people with more money than others, they have more of the world to control and rule over, that's not condemned in the Bible, having more. Right? Jesus had wealthy supporters. Paul planted the church in Philippi with the, the help of Lydia, right? a wealthy business owner. So just reinforcing, right? money is not evil. It's, it's a measure of how much power, uh, how much control you have in his world that he has given you. Right? And, and that's pretty clear. right? If you have a lot of money, we have options. We have freedoms. Uh, you, can, you have freedom to choose, right? Do I go out to eat or do I have to cook my own meal? Uh, do, I, do I fly on vacation or do I go to a movie? Um, what upgrade should I make to my home, right? Like all these questions are showing us we have control, more options when you have money. If you don't have a lot of money, it's hard to do much more than just survive. 
but you still have things to take care of. Right? So the temptation to love our possessions, to love money, is real. Whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter who you are. The, the, the storyline of the Bible is money quickly becomes our source of peace. It can become our purpose in life. It becomes what Gollum calls our precious, right? Um, and not, that is never more true in our culture, right? I'm sure maybe you've seen the bumper sticker that, that he who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> it's American. So let's reorient ourselves to what God says about money. And it starts on page one, right? The commandment to do not steal comes in the context of the story that God created all things, right? Including people. In Psalm 24, one, we'll meditate on that and say, the earth is the Lord's and everything that fills it, the world is his and everything that everyone who dwells within it, right? In other words, you and I are not our own, and neither is our stuff. Everything belongs to the Lord. Right? Everything you have is on loan, if you will. It's a, it's a gift. Right? I know it's tempting to, to object and say, I've worked hard for everything I have. And I'm, sure you, I'm sure we have. <laughs> but the reality is, you and I did nothing to choose to be born here. Right? With the particular family you have, with the particular amount of opportunities you had to, to go to college, to gain the wealth that you got. Right? I mean, God chose the time and place of our birth. So if, if we were born in 17th century in the rainforests of Borneo, you could work just as hard, but you wouldn't get as far. <laughs> no, the, 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 point, the testimony of the, the scriptures is that everything belongs to the Lord, including our money. Look at Israel, right? That's who we're talking to. What do they have that was not first a gift, right? This is this group of people that the Lord brought out of slavery in Egypt. They were a community of slaves who had nothing. They were people whom God plucked up out of slavery and plant, is planting in the promised land to give them houses they did not build, fields they did not plow, vineyards they did not plant. Everything they had, their flocks, the gold and, and all the precious metals they used to build the tabernacle, that was all plundered from Egypt, plunder that they got because of God's power working on their behalf. It was a gift. Right? And so like Adam... Israel is being given an Eden place, a home, a land to take care of, to subdue, to rule over. And so what the testimony of Scripture over and over is saying is our money is a gift. It's a, a gift from the owner of all things, our cosmic landlord. And he puts you in a place and says, care for this. And the way you care for this in our culture, right, in our context, and right, every context is money. Right? And this is part of being human. If you and I are, because we are made in the image of God to, to subdue the earth and have dominion over it and to care for the world the way God cares for it, one of the things the Bible is telling you and I is that uh, we were made to be stewards of something. Stewards of what God gave us. It's part of the high honor of being human. 
right? And I, I don't know if you've ever been poor or been around, uh, like especially developing world poverty, but it's one of the most humiliating things to not have stuff to take care of, right? To, to have no possessions, to go from place to place, to have all of your possessions fit in a, a shopping cart or in a bag, Because it's so far from God's plan to say, here are human beings and I'm putting you in this world to rule, subdue, and take care of something. And if you have nothing to take care of, you're not living, you're not able to live and be fully human. Right? But here's the point. Right? To, have, to have money, whether you have a lot or, or a little, you have God-given power and responsibility to use it well, to take care of the gifts he's given you. All right, because our stuff and our money is not our own. Right? And that, that gives context to the commandment to not steal. Right? If everything belongs to the Lord, it's starting, you can start to understand a little more why stealing would be such a serious offense, to make the top ten list, if you will. Right? To sin against the God who abundantly gives. All right, so first... You think about this, stealing is an insult to the God who provides. Right? I mean, that's, that's why Proverbs 30, verse 4 would say, this is, Get, Lord, give me poverty, neither poverty nor riches. Because if I'm full, I don't want to be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor, then steal and profane the name of my God. All right, so... The logic of, of Proverbs is saying if you're going to steal and take matters into your own hands, you, and sh- you're going to be showing the world that God, that you don't trust God and that he's not a good provider. Um, you're going to profane his name by the way you represent him. And part of stealing is to accuse God of, of being a bad provider. Right? And, and it's interesting that the Proverbs would recognize the fact that if you have nothing, that temptation to steal because you're starving is very real. Right? But another way to steal, you can, in God's world, if everything belongs to him, we can steal by misusing what God has given us. Right? So what happens if somebody gives you a million dollars and gives you, you know, it's your boss, right? They give you a million dollars and I want you to, here's, here's the spending list. And if you take that money that you have been given and spend it in ways your boss has not approved of, and even more so to spend it on yourself, right? we, we call that embezzling. It's stealing from the owner to misuse what he's given. Right? This is, when, I, when I put it that way, that's when I can start to feel, <laughs> and I think you can start to feel the weight of the Eighth Commandment. I mean, so, I mean, do not steal is very obvious, right? Do not, do not take what God has given to someone else to steward, to care for. Because, one, it's like an assault on their humanity. Right? God's given it to them. Right? Don't take what God has given someone else to rule over. Right? But it also follows, this is John Calvin... Right? He says, it follows that not only are the people thieves who secretly steal the property of others, 
But people are thieves who are, are those who also seek gain from the loss of others, who accumulate wealth by unlawful practices, who are more devoted to their own private advantage than their own equity, than to equity and fairness. There is no difference between a man's robbing his neighbor, whether it's by fraud or by force. Right? What, you hear what he's saying? Right? That there's all kinds of creative ways to steal. Right? You can, there, there's blue-collar crime where you just bully your way in and, and, and take and say, this is mine now. Or you can be sneaky. Right? You can use computers. You can, there's white-collar crime, as we call it. Right. You can also steal, according to the catechism, by, by being lazy, uh, but by not working hard. Right? If you're being paid a certain wage to do a certain job, and, and you don't do exactly what you're told to do, you're, you're stealing from your employer. Um, you could steal by not paying your taxes. Right? You can steal by making or selling something that you know doesn't work, Right? It's the typical used car salesman. Uh, by not paying someone a fair wage. I, mean, I love the story by Jerem Barr is telling about his father who was uh, ran some farms in Southern California. And so every season, uh, he would hire uh, immigrant workers. And 30 years later, after going through season after season of paying a fair wage at his own cost to these immigrant workers, more so than other farms because he was a Christian. 30 years later, uh, he had the, the honor of a, a local Mexican man saying thank you. Uh, to, to come and say, you, you honored me, you, you gave us more than you needed to give. In fact, I've raised my sons uh, to tell them this is the kind of man you want to be with your wealth, right? Because he paid a fair wage. Uh, the word for steal here in Deuteronomy 5 is often used to describe kidnapping in the Old Testament. So do not steal includes don't steal people. <laughs> so outlaws, the slave trade, human trafficking. Um, right. And so you're getting the idea, right? That this is, what is your relationship with your stuff like? Do you, do you see it as a gift? Are you willing to use it as God has commanded it? All right, and that's, that's the second point here. If everything belongs to God, and he says, how does God expect me to use it? And the second point is we're commanded to be generous, right? And so how does God command us to use our money? Right, so we've, in every commandment, we've looked at this and say, uh, not only is it commanding the negative, don't do this, it's also by commanding the negative, it's also commanding the positive. Right? So it's saying not only should you not take what's not yours, you should give generously and graciously. Right? This is one of the ways to love God and others. Right? So one of the commandments all through the Old Testament is tithe. Give 10% to the Lord. And that, that's the minimum over and over again in the, in the Old Testament. All right, and in Israel, the, the tithe went to the priests and to the poor. Right, and the poor would include the widows, the fatherless, the refugees, the, the immigrants. So give, give 10% of your 
income, which in an agricultural society was often food, um, but, but it was to, a gift so that the priests could survive and do what God's called them to do, which was serve them, uh, to teach God's law and, and mediate God's presence and everything that the priests did. All right? and, and interestingly, in the Old Testament, if you add up all the commands to, to leave extra for the poor and for the immigrant, um, very likely the law-keeping Israelite will give much more than 10%. Some have thrown out the number 23% of their income. Right. You say, well, what about us? We're as Christians on the other side of the cross. Well, interestingly, the New Testament doesn't say tithe. You can't find a tithing verse in the New Testament. Right? But the, the categories of who we're called to support doesn't change. Uh, give to those who teach you. Uh, that's Galatians, as well as give to the poor. Right. Now, instead of communicating and commanding a tithe, you find, that's why I included 2 Corinthians 8 for our assurance of pardon, right? It's in a fundraising passage. Paul is saying, I'm raising money for the poor in Jerusalem, and he's raising money for the poor from Gentiles. You've never met these people in Corinth and Macedonia. And Paul's argument as here's why you should give, and give joyfully. Look at Jesus. Right? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, right, the owner of all things, he's our creator. Yet for our, your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we, you, might become rich. Right? The principle is Jesus gave up everything he had to have you so that you might have what he has. <laughs> Therefore, let that be like a seed that grows and bears fruit in your life. Give till it hurts. Right? The, 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 the Christian ethic of giving is, is Jesus' example. And not just his example, the gift of salvation. <laughs> that, that's the power. Right? And so the idea of, of giving as a Christian, right, you, you cannot give without bearing someone else's burden. The, the, the call is let, let someone else's burden be your burden as well. And I came across this quote by Jonathan Edwards writing to, writing to a church, saying, it's a, I think it was in a tract on giving. But he said, you know, the, the, the rule of the gospel is this that when you see your brother or sister under any difficulty or burden, you should be ready to bear that burden with them. That's what Paul wrote, bear one another's burdens in Galatians, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so here's the logic. When, says Edwards, when our neighbor is in difficulty, he's afflicted. And so we ought to have such a spirit of love to him to be afflicted with their affliction, right? to feel their pain. And if we ought to be afflicted with them, then it will follow that we ought to be ready to relieve them. Because if we are actually afflicted with them, by helping them, we're also relieving ourselves. His relief is so far as our own relief, as his affliction is our affliction. And Christianity teaches us to be afflicted in our neighbor's affliction. And just human nature teaches us to help ourselves feel better when we're afflicted. <laughs> right? It's old language, but you hear what he's saying. Right? When, 
especially in the church. When you see someone suffering, when you see someone in need, you should be willing to suffer with them to the point where it's actually suffering to help them. Right? Love your neighbor to the point of giving till their hurts become your hurts. And since you don't ignore your hurts, help them. Right? And, and the reality is, right, I'm not actually hurting, burning myself unless it costs me something to help. And that's, that's the Christian ethic. Right? Tithing is, is the tip of the iceberg. Right? And so, how much should you give? Give what you can cheerfully and give it as if giving to the Lord. Second, give generously, right? Ephesians 4.28, we read, right? Let the thief no longer steal. Let him labor, doing honest work with his hands that he may have something to share with someone in need. And one of the, the, the fascinating things, right? The effect of the gospel on a thief on someone with sticky fingers is, hey, go work hard. Why? So that you have something to share with those in need, Paul's just imitating the patterns of the Old Testament because the portrait of a righteous person over and over and over again in the Old Testament is someone who gives. Right? So Psalm 112, for example. Blessed is the, the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. And then it goes on to say, it is well with the person who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. He has distributed freely, has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That's just one example. Ezekiel 18, a righteous person, does not oppress anyone. He restores the debtor his pledge. He commits no robbery. He gives bread to the hungry, covers the naked with his clothing, does not lend it interest or take profit from loans. Right? You can hear all this money language being intertwined with righteousness. And the portrait you end up getting in the scriptures is everything you have is a gift so that God's abundance to you may flow through you to others. Right? So if you have abundance, it's not to hoard but given to you to help, to make Jesus known through our generosity to those in need. Now, the, the idea of giving and righteousness, right? The righteous are people who are willing to disadvantage themselves to help the community. The wicked are those who are willing to disadvantage the community to help themselves. I'm summarizing uh, a commentator on Proverbs. And see, you get the idea. Right? The scriptures paint the picture of someone who is righteous as someone who is generous, able to work hard and work hard in order to give to those in need. Right? The fact that we have charitable giving and tax breaks that come with charitable giving is just the effect that Christianity has had on our culture. We want to give to whoever we see in need. 
Last point here before we conclude. Right, we're also, right, tithing was the minimum, uh, but we're called to give generously and graciously. Uh, right, not only should we support the work of making Jesus known, support the work of God's kingdom, and, and be generous with what we have, but we should be graciously generous. Because the moment you say, okay, I should give my money away, you have questions. What if they don't deserve it? Right? What if they waste the money that I give them? Well, and the answer is, well, what have you done with what God has given you? Now, interestingly, in, in one of the God's first acts post-fall, what does he do? Right? This is right after Adam and Eve have squandered all the wealth of Eden in order to spend what God has given them in their own way. <laughs> they just take. Right? God gives. He makes, he makes clo- clothing for the naked. He makes clothing of skins for Adam and his wife. Now, one of God's first acts after the fall in the garden was to love those who wasted and misused his gifts. It was an act of mercy to those who wounded him. So you could say God was graciously generous. And that's just the beginning of the story. Look what he does with Israel. Right? Read the Old Testament. Have you met what Israel's like? <laughs> and yet God continually gives. Right? God was graciously generous and we're called to imitate him. And I love the, this is the best quote by uh, Robert Murray McShane when he talks about this because he's, he's trying to persuade people in his congregation who have lots of money to give. And he says, the people whom I give my money to, they might abuse it. That's his church. And his answer Well, Christ might have said the same thing, but with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make his blood an excuse for sinning more, yet Jesus still gave his own blood. My dear Christians, if you want to be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely, even to the vile and undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so you shall be. It's not your money I want, it's your happiness. Remember his own word, it's more blessed, more happy to give than to receive. So you can keep intertwining. You see what kind of community the gospel forms if at the very heart of what binds us together is God himself giving up everything, including himself, so that we might live. Right? It forms a gracious, generous, giving community because we worship Jesus who first loved us by giving, giving up everything. Right? The, the, the model is 2 Corinthians 8 9 that he's, he, the owner of everything saw our poverty, saw that we were not righteous and he came down and he moved into the poor neighborhood. Right? He, didn't, he didn't move into a palace. He was born in a manger. He wasn't born to wealthy parents. He was born to Joseph and Mary. And, and we know they're poor because when they went to make that offering for Jesus at the beginning of his, the beginning of his life, they offered turtle doves, the offering of the poor. Right? And it, it, Jesus' life culminates by saying... Um, 
Well, his life culminates by dying naked, penniless, and poor on the cross. And this is the owner of everything. Why did he go through that? So that we who have hoarded, we who have used God's gifts for ourselves, might be made righteous as he is righteous. That you might become rich in him. Right? And so, that yeah, on the one hand, you are righteous in Christ. You have his resources. You are treated right now as if you have kept every commandment, as if you have the reputation of being the most generous person right? in Christ. But the reality is we're, we're, we're rich because what does Jesus have? He has everything. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right? There, there is a sense where we have wealth that we have yet to experience in the new heavens and new earth that has our name in it, that was paid with Christ's blood, that is a gift, which lessens our, our attraction and our, our hoarding tendencies on the things we have now because we can give it away because we know more and better is coming because we're going to have Jesus. And I mean, the, the heart of our faith is God himself giving up himself to carry our affliction. So how would that affect our relationship with our stuff? Right? See, to the extent you and I see how treasured we are in Christ, money starts to lose its hold in our hearts and we'll be formed into gracious, generous givers. And, and actually think about these things. How do I spend my money? And why do I do that? And should I do that? And who can I help? And those are questions that we can answer together. Those are questions that we need the Spirit's help to know where to give and how to give. I mean, by God's grace, this has been an abundantly generous place. And so we pray that we have opportunities to continue to be, be that light in the darkness. Right? As we look to our neighbors and say, God has blessed us. How can, we, how can we bless you so that you might know him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your abundant generosity that you abound in steadfast love and faithfulness and you have promised to provide. And yet I know that there are those of us who still have questions. We have fears. We have anxieties. Uh, we have put our heart in our stuff. And so I pray that um, as we see Christ crucified for us, that our treasure would be with him, in him, and you would continue to teach us how to, how to love as you loved and, and lessen our love for our stuff. So Lord, we ask for your work to be done here at Hope Church that the, the, the light of Christ might shine brightly because you gave yourself to us. And for that we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.